Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christopher Russell, host of today's episode with Dr. Bruce Reese. Dr. Reese is a fellow and faculty member at the Institute for Psychoanalytic Training and Research, New York, an adjunct clinical assistant professor in the New York University postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, and a member of the Boston Change Process Study Group. He is North American Book Review Editor for the International Journal of Psychoanalysis and serves on the editorial boards of the Psychoanalytic Quarterly and Psychoanalytic Dialogues. He is the co-editor with Robert Grossmark of Heterosexual Masculinities featured on this program in 2013. We welcome him back today to explore his dynamic new book, Creative Repetition and Intersubjectivity, Contemporary Freudian Explorations of Trauma, Memory, and Clinical Process out this year, 2020, from Rutledge. Dr. Reese, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invite. Sure. Um, We start the the program pretty much the same way, which is, why this book now? What motivated you to write the book? Uh, Well, that's a great question. And uh, I I guess I take issue with the with the word now because it's taken so long to write. Um, I guess uh, maybe about half the 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 chapters in the book are previously published papers. So um, I got to a tipping point, I guess, where I thought, okay, time for the book. The book has um, a lot of when you go through the book. In the in the preface, uh, Christopher Bolas mentions a, a number of things. One of them being that the the approach to the literature is not a standard literature review. He calls it an inspiring salon, um, and it's really remarkable how all of the authors, all the theorists that you engage with, are talking to each other. They're talking to you talking to cases and then and then since they're all of together of talking to us it's an extremely engaging book how did you pick your theorists how did you bring them together my my guiding principle has always been um that i i veer in psychoanalysis toward what's interesting to me um that's where i go i just will naturally go to what's interesting to me and so i go to the uh, writers who really, you know, in my view, have developed elegant formulations. And I find that that in doing that, uh, a lot of their formulations tend to, uh, it, it's like, um, it's like travelers going to the same country and describing what they see there. Uh, each of the descriptions is going to be different, but you know, it's really the same place. So, so I go to, uh, the the uh, theorists who I consider kind of giants uh, uh, in the field, like Christopher Bolas, like Thomas Ogden, like uh, the late uh, Michel Dumézin, 
and they're describing very, very similar uh, processes that happen with patients, what things that happen in deep analytic engagement, uh, and they're describing it in such uh, such elegant ways, such um, studied ways that uh, that they they begin to talk to each other, at least in my mind, and hopefully in the book, they begin to to comment on each other's um, views of the of that undiscovered country. It, it's really lovely. Uh, it is lovely. And you talk about the deep level. You say that this book is interested in part in the micro rather than the macro level at which change occurs. Yeah, I, most psychoanalytic writing, I think, or, or at least a great deal of it, uh, focuses on the, the, the grand arcs of a treatment, uh, maybe beginning with a uh, an infantile history and then, you know, all the way to the end of the treatment, um, creating a kind of a grand narrative, a big narrative. A lot of the theorists I'm interested in and a lot of my own interest has to do with the, um, the really the quite quotidian, the, the very daily, uh, types of interactions that analysts and patients have again and again and and then all of a sudden are different um, because they've happened again and again. I, I'm really particularly interested in this book in the issue of uh, the unconscious relation between analyst and patient and how, how that is a mysterious relation um, and a, a tremendously powerful force for the treatment. Right, and that's um, when you you say in the introduction that that is the interest in the in re- unconscious relation, if not necessarily relational, as that's understood. Um, there's a really lovely uh, sentence in the book, which is that people improve in psychoanalysis not due to the symbolization of defensively warded off experience that can now be felt as part of oneself, but rather from having an experience of being with an other that very often cannot be adequately captured or narrated by way of the symbolic and does not have to do with the expanding uh, the ego's claim over experience. I thought that was really uh, powerful and and interesting to hold on to. Thanks. I I think that's how treatment actually works. I think that's where the the engine of treatment exists. it's in that relation, and um, and the, the theorists that I mentioned earlier, I, I think, also you know paved the way for this kind of an understanding that that there are things that really just defy or don't require wording, um, and the interpretation that one may make about an experience like that after the fact becomes superfluous because it's it is that being with the person, it is that being with the certain mental states of, of that person or living an experience together as Winnicott would have it, that that is the whole thing. Right. Well, that gets us, uh, that gets us into, there are, there are nine chapters, but there's one that is in a sense called out, um, in the dedication, uh, in the preface by Bolas and in the introduction. So the dedication is, is a poem and the turn in the poem, uh, says, in a normal story, a faint voice, but here, a solid silence. 
uh, Bolus in the preface opens with mentioning your chapter on silence. And what's interesting is the last line of his uh, preface is there is quiet genius at work in these pages. And then um, the story that you tell with you and your daughter and, and uh, in a museum uh, spending time in it, but she turns a corner and there's a statue and it, you write, it had a profound effect upon her that she did not attempt to verbalize analysis can offer a similar experience in a sense, wordlessness in the talking cure. Right. Right. It's, um, it's the way we know others, uh, right. It's, it's, of course, it's certainly through talking with them. It's certainly through being with them for a long time. But there are ways that, um, we encounter the world and others that, uh, you know, go, go far beyond uh, our philosophies. They're, they're, uh, they are ways that are really actually mysterious. And one of the things that I like so much about uh, certain, certain writers in the field is that they maintain that mystery. They don't try to narrate it away, and they don't try to um, make things understandable which is a, a kind of, to my mind, is a great, uh, it's a great um, injustice to certain realms of human experiencing. So you go right back here to uh, ideas that Winnicott had about uh, com- certain kinds of communication coming from an incommunicata core. Um, you, you go to some of Bolas's work about uh, what he calls character and how how we can only experience another person's character by by um their their creating certain forms within us not not by what they say but by um by their use of objects whether those objects are words or even them using the analyst as an evocative object um sorry i'm getting texts <laughs> so oh. it, it's uh the, the, it's the mystery of that. The, it's the, the the not needing to to word it, not needing to symbolize it. There's a there's a tremendous, um, as you know, there's a tremendous uh, premium put on the issue of symbolization these days, and and I, I think that's not where it's at. I think the I think what really makes change and where connection occurs is not in the symbolic understanding of things. I, yeah, I had that thought with, um, I'm going to paraphrase, you know, Bolas says somewhere that a patient who's theorizing about themselves is not engaged in psychoanalysis, um, his way of sort of talking about what was called the fundamental rule. And I wonder if the opposite of, is true, if an analyst who's there simply trying to uh, symbolize their theory is also not engaged. Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about something actually recently, the last couple of weeks, um, I was meant to write a paper on the topic of analytic listening. Um, There was going to be a a symposium at uh, my institute, but now with the coronavirus, everything is off. Um, but But I started thinking about analytic listening, and I started thinking about how there were kind of, there are, in my mind, uh, three stages of that listening. There's listening for, which is 
which is a kind of listening that one might associate with um, modern conflict theory or ego psychology, where you're listening for the determinant, the drive de- uh, derivatives, you're listening for compromise formations, you know, they're there, you're waiting for them, and you're, you're listening for them to occur. Then there's listening to, which I think uh, um, is, a, is a wide uh, scope of analytic listening, that where the analyst is listening to the patient, their words, maybe one thinks of something like self-psychology. And then there's, I, I think there's a third category, which I'd like to try and think and write about, which is a, a listening with. It's something like a reverberation, something having to do with uh, thinking about analytic knowledge, not in the terms of a visual metaphor, you know, like the, the light of reason and understanding, but something, uh, an idea about analytic knowledge that has something to do more with uh, attunement and uh, um, See, I don't even have quite the words for it yet, but something like a, a vibration, a, a knowledge of the other person. That that gets to me close to what I read Bola saying when he's talking about forms, close to what um, you know some other uh kind of post-Bionian writers are are writing about in terms of um uh, a field. There, there's a there's a resonance, there's a uh, it, it it undoes the subject-object dichotomy a little bit. So uh, I'm, that's my response. I'm, I, I, it's because it's what I'm thinking of. It uh, it came to mind for uh, regard with your question. And is that in to, in the book? You is that close to what you're talking about when you use the term slow listening? Yeah, I, I love that term. I think it's. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the analyst who who coined the term Parsons. I, I think, uh, I think it's Parsons terms that, that, um, that, that brings us back, I think to that, uh, 1912 paper by, by Freud, where he said, um, that in, in analytic listening, one must simply listen. Uh, that that's his term, just simply listen. And he says that the, the meaning of the words will become evident later, much later. And and that's you know for anyone who um, who's engaged in analysis over time and done a fair bit of work, it's so true. It, what if you're if you're feeling you like you're getting the immediate meaning of the words that the patient is speaking, then then perhaps something is wrong. <laughs> I yeah I mean I've had that experience where somebody said something very early on, um, and then actually it was twelve years later when I went oh that's oh. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my God. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've, that's an amazing experience. It's interesting you bring up, um, I mean, we're all in the middle of it with coronavirus and keeping distance in a sense, not being influenced or touched at all. And yet in, in the book overall, and then in each chapter, you write a version of, we must be receptive and receptive to, uh, in this book, you know, uh, monsters, invasions, people who want to take us over, um, and that those experiences um, 
you you talk about it them being the everyday currency of analysis and one of the the most beautiful i mean one of the most beautiful chapters is is the one on psychoanalytic witnessing um how what is your definition of psychoanalytic witnessing oh <laughs> um it, it i think that's really a complicated question I, I i think it's it has to do with uh uh something like that resonance i was describing a moment ago uh something having to do with um the the um the pairing of patient and analyst creating uh creating an opportunity for an address and the address uh is something that is uh in in because it, we're talking about witnessing the address is something that's dramatic that really can't take the form of words because by definition the traumatic it breaks those conceptual categories so the address becomes somatic the address becomes unconscious but because it is an analytic frame and setup it the address can be received where outside of that setup it's merely repetition so you have you have trauma theories left and right that say that traumatic repetition is meaningless it doesn't mean anything it's just a kind of um leftover quotient from the trauma but <clears throat> excuse me but i think anal for analysts it's that traumatic repetition that holds everything it holds the the force of the patient's uh experience in the situation it communicates um something that is um a kind of break in an experience of humanity right and then in the in in the stories throughout the book the in a sense conversion there's the repetition you mention as demonic and then here creative repetition which allows which which occurs only you know in the session after time yeah one of the one of the uh things i was really interested to do is what was to uh think about think a lot about the different types of uh approaches that um theorists from around the world have taken to the issue of intersubjectivity <clears throat> here in the us we we tend to think of it in in some very uh particular ways it's uh i'm I, i'm in no way am i saying those ways are wrong some of the work in this book uh thinks about it in ways that are friendly to that that way of thinking but but in other parts of the world in europe for instance in the french tradition uh even in kind of beonian circles down in uh south america intersubjectivity is often spoken about often written about in in very stark terms um the the uh demesan writes about about the creation of intersubjective monsters right there there he calls them chimeras that are mm -hmm. um monstrous creations uh that occur between the coming together of the unconscious of the analyst and the unconscious of the patient and you get that you get images when you read his work of of just horrible beings um and and in some sense that's really what it should be right because if we're talking about the unconscious we're talking about 
you know, in this version of the unconscious, at least, we're talking about um, really very, very um, almost like the almost like the film The Fly, where where you have these kind of hybrid experiences that are yours. They occur in the inside the analyst, that is to say, but they're they're uh, receptions of something from the patient that haven't been able to be um, thought or experienced and those those things um it, it's fascinating to to read and hear about other versions of the intersubjective that that are less um what i consider what i would consider tame than the what what north americans usually write about well you, you mentioned it the at the the beginning just now the what's really for me remarkable about the book and and the everybody in dialogue you're the theorists you'll you'll put them out there in maybe their extremes but as a way to um say okay well here here's this point of view and i bring this to it and there's there's a there's a gap and now i'm going to try to explain the gap you're never really in opposition to anybody's thought it's sort of like everything is welcome here and then this is to me the the subtleness. So you talk about the micro to say what's what's happening here. Um, and I think at one point you address the the chimera or the hallucinations that they tend to be dramatized and get sort of a lion's share of the work. Um, and that you're interested in in much more subtle, uh, smaller uh, pieces. There, there's such a spectrum of of this intersubjective, uh, unconscious intersubjective uh, relation, and they can take really dramatic forms, as as you just said. And of course, um, and and in some in some cases, that can be really dangerous, right? Because um, you can there there might be a tendency to want to um, uh, make to mystify those those types of experiences and draw the whole thing into a mysticism or there may be a um a tendency to try and want to stay in those places which which a number of uh writers i i found this particularly interesting writers from each of the different continents who who have developed intersubjective thought have all warned against staying in that place because that's a very very dangerous place um that that analysts can only kind of visit for short periods of time and must get out of. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot to, I forgot the question. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it just, it, it, no, it's just, I was just responding to the, the, the way that you've oh, yeah. uh, used and then all, it goes all, all the way these... down the spectrum, right. To, to things like uh, intuition or mm-hmm. hunches. Um, huh, I wonder. Right, so there. It's the same. It's really the same process. It's really uh, a matter of degree. Um, but but I, I I certainly think the same process. But the idea of having it not say get get stuck in 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 the mystic um, mysticism, you know, shows up here. There's there's two different um, cases where you a song or a song lyric comes into your head. Um, but it is then in a sense, demystified by, you know, what comes out, um, in, in the case. 
I was I was teaching a um, a class the other day at the institute, and I, I was telling the class that there's a there's a um, there's a controversy amongst a very small group of people in the world uh, about which is which is a more primitive experience to have the visual pictogram experience that occurs to analysts when they see something in their minds um, that that's understood to be representative of something of the patients or uh, this a kind of sonic equivalent of, of hearing something. And, and it's actually in the literature, there's a little discussion about going back and forth. I, I think people must be, must be more attuned to one or the other of them. Uh, it, it has to be the case. Well, I identified with that because I'm very attuned to song lyrics. I will wake up in the morning before going in and, and I'll have a song stuck in my head and 99 times out of a hundred, it's, it's about, it's nothing to do with me. It's about the case. Yeah. And I think the really interesting thing is when, when that happens to me, at least I, I start hearing the song. It's not like I'm thinking about, Oh yeah, you know, there's that song or, you know, Aretha Franklin sang that. No, it, I'm hearing the song. I'm hearing her voice, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which comes under the kind of towards the category of hallucinosis, a kind of, uh, access to to something that's taking shape and at that point you don't know what it is you you just you have to kind of follow um follow that experience to unpack it which goes back to you have to be receptive yeah it's all about that receptivity i will uh you know when i when i first read that the a song lyric from grace jones appeared to you, I was convinced it was going to be nipple to the bottle. I mean, how could it not be? And it wasn't, but it seems like that would be the most perfect song, but it wasn't. Um, but in, in that, in that particular case, I thought what was interesting was that her voice came up, came through mm-hmm. and, and the lyrics, I'm not perfect, but I'm perfect for you, which is basically that whole song is just the chorus. I, I thought, I thought that was interesting that the, that the content of the lyrics, as far as I could tell and as far as I can del- tell to date, have, have no bearing on, on what was going on with the patient or myself. I thought the contents were completely um, beyond the point, that it was, that it was her um, that, that was the important thing, her appearing out of, out of the world of possible uh, images and, and something having to do with the, the, um, the coming together of aggression and sexuality in, in, the, uh, in the image of her or the, the sound of her that reflected uh, that particular patient's approach to how he was relating to bodies, particularly women's bodies, but uh, bodies and and why why his seeing a photo of of her captured him just captured him because it had it just it it melded some things which for him were were not yet able to be articulated he couldn't he couldn't talk about aggression 
with or without sexuality. He, it was it was that image though that that uh, captured him. It's yeah, it was remarkable. Um, the, the I think that's the case with um, uh, things not making an impression. Yeah, uh, it's about um, uh, I went back to Winnicott for this patient where he talks about um, a kind of patient who's pre-Ruth for whom um, they, they can't really form identifications yet. So, so what they do is they mimic, they, they go into a form of mimicry and, and ad- adhesive identification. Um, and they, they attempt to uh, take on uh, qualities and mimic them as if they are their own. In a in a very kind of primitive attempt to um, to develop a mind, really, but 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 they can't identify with the analyst's mind, and and that's a that's a kind of necessary um, moment for for the for the process of psychoanalysis. Well, that's that's right. Um, in the the idea of saying, okay. All right, I'm going to go in. I'm going to be receptive. I'm going to be receptive to the person uh, somewhere in the book you write about. The person says, "Okay, I'm going to use the analyst mind. They have an idea about this mind that they're using, and that this is even before that." I think you say these are patients that live without subjective involvement. Yeah, yeah, they just. Uh, I, you know, they should be familiar to to most analysts. They're they're people mm-hmm. who want to know what to do, and you should tell them. And because you know, of course, and um, and there there is a there's a kind of collapsed space, or the space where a self should be is is not yet uh, taken any kind of shape. So instead of instead of responding to the analysts. Uh, uh, interpretation or comments with um, a thoughtfulness of any kind. Uh, there's a kind of there's often a kind of mimicry that that'll occur. Um, and and in that case, uh, it, it's it's very pronounced. Um, I, I I'm interested in that case particularly because it seems to me there's a a, a kind of normal symbiont relationship between patient and analyst. That the uh, the patient really does live in the analyst in some ways, as as much as the analyst comes to live in the patient. And I, I certainly know that I'm walking around the grocery store and maybe reaching for a bag of rice or something, and I, I just think about something about one of my patients. It just comes to my mind. And and first, you know, I. I I can't not believe that patients know this about us. That they know they, many or most people know they exist within us, and that we carry them, um, and hold them, and think about them, uh, consciously and unconsciously. Well, what's interesting about that about you know grab the bag of rice and and this person that asks questions about what to do it is they're not all not grand questions on where I should put my IRA or stuff like that. It's really day-to-day stuff. Should I buy brown rice or sushi rice? It's really that, that small thing. 
And in those moments, um, which I've had, because my wife always sees me, I'll just stop. I always carry a pen and a, a notepad with me. She's like, what are you doing? I said, I just, this, I have to write this down because something has occurred to me, you know, out of nowhere, ostensibly mm-hmm. nowhere. The, and then there was some where you said Simeon, I was thinking, um, there was one case where, um, you finally just said, okay. And you, you took a deep breath. And one of the, my favorite images is, uh, Andre green, who says that the, the analyst functions as an iron lung, allowing the patient to exist. And I have, I have found that in myself and in cases, the respiratory difficulties in certain cases. We're not just talking about this because of Corona, right? We are not talking about this. No, this is pre pre Corona. Um, so we use the word collapse and one of the, uh, ideas that I found really, um, fascinating and quite helpful, uh, was, I forget the name of the chapter was, but the, the collapse between the life and death drive and that dialectic. Can you say more about that for, for the listeners who have not yet read the book? Sure. Um, that's in a chapter uh, about something I call zombie states. Okay. And for me, zombie states are states of deadness that are animated. So they, they look as if they're alive, but there's just enough life to animate the deadness. And it's a kind of a different take on what was originally uh, introduced by Deutsch as the as-if personality. Um, but I think of it as a kind as a, I think of it as there being a necessary dialectical tension between uh, the life drive of Eros and and the death drive, and they 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 really must kind of um, interpenetrate each other in order for in order for normal mental functioning to exist. But when they when they start to become dissociated from each other in whole or in part. Uh, then a kind of living deadness occurs where um, where what Freud wrote about in terms of the death drive as a a move back toward the inorganic that that sheds uh, the um, the particularities of individualism um, of character of of who one is. Um, starts to occur, and then you see a kind of um, a kind of run toward uh, fetishistic consumerism or mass market identification that that just kind of um, cuts out pieces and pieces and pieces of the individual to the to the extent to which um, to the extent to which there's there's no one home. But they're doing everything that a person would do, or they they're doing everything they've they've witnessed other people doing. So they they'll go to their jobs, they'll they'll go on nice vacations, um, but there's no subjective involvement in that. Little or no subjective involvement. They're doing it because it's what people do. Right. I think that I think that in that chapter the. It's identified as the the pure repetition of identical beings, yeah, and that yeah. the death drive, as in in one of the ways conceived, is this 
drive towards sameness, uh, normotic illness, I think is the mm-hmm. bolus idea about it. That's right. It, sameness is, is a super important idea in this, right? So who are you voting for? I don't know. Who, who, who are you thinking of voting for? Right? Well, I was right. going to vote for X. But yeah, X. Totally X. My guy. That's my guy, too. Um, the, the sameness is this characteristic of the death drive that, that Freud wrote about. The, the death drive has kind of two, um, two branches to it. One is a kind of uh, understood as aggressive and, and destructive. The other branch of it is understood as um, uh, a reducing force. A, a conservative force that s- seeks to bring everything back to its the, the stillness of its inorganic state, and so when you shed all of these individual characteristics of preference or um, attitude, you you start to become less and less human in certain ways. You become you become a zombie you, who who kind of feeds off the brains of other people in a, you know, if you, if you don't take that in too derogatory a term, um, if you think about it more in terms of something like, a, um, like a Kleinian uh, way where, where you, you are taking contents from other people's brains to sustain yourself, but because you just don't have them yourself. Well, what I think is interesting is that is that put me in mind um, back to silence, but as a as a fantasy. And I thought about this with the the chapter that I've had the experience um, of people who you know are are, are friends and say, "Oh, um, they, I, I need you to make a referral to for a friend of mine." But and these are people that have no clue how I work. They just know psychoanalysts. They go, oh, but but not what you do. They want someone who will talk to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens frequently. But also, on the other hand, the number of times where someone in the first session will have mentioned they've been in a different type of therapy, and I'll you know ask them about that, and they go, oh, well, I, it didn't work out because the analyst spoke too much. <laughs> you know, so this idea, the fantasy of what silence is, will I have something to feed on? I cannot go into emptiness. And then people reporting, um, you know, well, there was, there was, there was too much. But it's a, it, it's, um, it's a necessarily kind of scary place, right? That, mm-hmm. that, that people will, some people will, will defend against um, very strongly uh, to to begin with to go to that place where where analyst and patient are sitting together silently perhaps after perhaps after a long period of work can be can be terrifying can be extremely uh, nurturing can be so many different things but um, but it it can also be really scary to to envision that that one might want that kind of relation to another human being and 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 even say that at the beginning of a treatment right yeah i'm remembering um in my in my training a case where 
silence was in a sense chosen as uh, uh, an intervention, if not an interpretation, where the decision was made after you know work and supervision to remain silent um, unless there was a direct contact. Are you back there? What do you think? Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the case um, spoke 50 straight minutes, never, no acknowledgement. Uh, and at the end was alive, loved it, um, was almost manic. Uh, it was probably too much silence. Um, but then in, in subsequent weeks, referred to that day as the day of the wonderful conversation. And I, hadn't, I, did <laughs> not, I did not say one word. Conversation is great. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, because I'm interested in things like infant research as well, you know, I, I also think about things like fittedness, which is a, a term that uh, the Boston Change Process Group has used. And fitted, fittedness between an infant and the mother refers to the, the infant's needs and the mother's capacities and vice versa. And they, they reach a point of, um, uh, that's going to work for, for the pair. And I, I, I know it, it's true of analytic pairs as well, that there are, you, you must, you must uh, participate more with some people or they're, they're going to feel adrift and abandoned in, in unproductive ways. Um, and you must uh, withdraw yourself more with others or they're going to feel intruded upon. Well, it's interesting you bring up a, a drift. Um, that's a word that uh, comes up in the book. And I only recently uh, read um, that one of the ways that Lacan used the word drive, he used the word drift, as in we're all adrift. Um, and that there's the sense of feeling adrift. Um, uh, but then there was a case where uh, you mentioned a patient that is just so concrete. There was no influencing, no way to get in touch with. And I thought, there's a that, someone who's that concrete, that heavy, can't can't drift. Yeah, I was I was I was speaking with a patient um, very recently who was talking about a difficulty in reading, and it's somebody who is very uh, very goal oriented, very very focused on achieving goals. And they were, they were speaking about why it was so hard to read. And the person said that when they read, they start to drift, their mind starts to drift and they start to think about other things and they won't allow themselves to do that. So they put the book down and and they get to a task that's discreet and they can finish and what's interesting is that um, part of an invitation in analysis is, hey, let's let's drift together. Completely, let's drift together and see where the where the um, the tides take us. Right. And in a sense, it's a it's a powerful ask of of both the patient and the analyst. Hey, patient, give up give up the goal, just drift. Hey, analyst, give up the theory, just drift. You know. It's like, really, we're going to do this? I mean, it's really, uh, it's a big ask. Um, it, it's, a, it's a huge ask, right? And for the analyst to simply listen, are you kidding me? Everybody's <laughs> got their pet theories and 
well, obviously, you know, it's clearly this or it's clearly that. And and the 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 real power, I think, of a lot of the work that uh, that I um, I survey and write about in the book is that if we're, if we're really talking about the unconscious, if we're really talking about a realm that is unknowable, then you you can't directly go there. You can't you can't try to see it or find it or you're you're swept by it. You're influenced by it. You know whether it's paraproxies or whether it's um, reverie experience. It uh, it it makes itself known to you as a as a phantom as a as something unknown that becomes that becomes known not not known in as in the sense that oh i realize now what i really wanted to do is kill my father and marry my mother but it makes it makes itself known to you um in ways that you you simply cannot anticipate and and this is this i think is a a really interesting um application of the idea of drift because you you have to drift otherwise um you have to let go of that that conscious control let go of a um, <clears throat> a conscious form of method, otherwise you're you're doing something that that uh, is something else. There's a a wonderful uh, quote in um, the history of trauma, and I think it's it's I've never uh, Doctor Cooperman who says in the beginning of an analysis, the patient comes with his symptoms, and the analyst comes with his technique. And if things go well, both come out from hiding. <laughs> right. I had a I had a supervisor who used to say, um, every psychoanalysis begins with a false confession. The patient tells you their story. You go, okay, it's a nice story. And now, what's on your mind? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, yeah. I think yes. I've had that that experience. The idea of this. Okay, just simply listen and. Going back to the well, uh, the false confession of the patient with a goal. Um, I remember, um, I think it's in form and content when you're talking about the, you don't call it a false belief, that this belief that, okay, I can transform unrepresented experience into a noble piece of consciousness. And you say, look, it's not sitting there waiting. It's not disguised content. And the phrase, I really loved it. It is made of different stuff. And that its job is to disrupt, not bring closure yeah. or knowledge or continuity. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, the, the line that comes to mind is, is from uh, um, uh, Paul Eloir, the, the French poet. He said, uh, there's another world, but it is in this one. And and that's the disruption, right? There's this other world that we live, and it's and it's in this world, <laughs> but it but it it comes to disrupt the world, and it comes to it comes to open things, not to bring clarity or closure. Yeah, I, I love that idea. Yeah, and and then that, in a sense, uh, challenges disrupts this idea of okay, the Freudian idea. We're going to be like horse and rider. No, we're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not happening. No, you know. Um, 
And I think that that, I got that idea or what put me in mind of that idea was the chapter on, uh, the, the duende. This isn't going to be domesticated, not going to be controlled. Um, and it's gonna, it's gonna be a battle. Like the, the duende is a demon, right? And, and a lot of the, a lot of the psychoanalytic, uh, intersubjective writing is about monsters and demons. And the duende, the duende is, um, I, I, there's a quote in the chapter. Just turn to it. The frontispiece in the chapter is from uh, Garcia Loca. He says, "The duende. Where is the duende? Through the empty archway, a wind of the spirit enters, blowing insistently over the heads of the dead, in search of new landscapes and unknown accents. A wind with the odor of a child's saliva, crushed grass, and Medusa's veil." announcing the endless baptism of freshly created things. So it's a marvelous quote for, for analysis, right? It's, it's about, it's about, um, it's about entering that other world that's in this one and gaining access to that level of living in two worlds at once, which the, which later in that chapter, the, the poet Tracy K. Smith, uh, is quoted as writing about. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's interesting because as we as we go into this, I'm like, oh, I'm feeling disrupted. Should I go back to a question I had prepared, or should we just <laughs> drift along in this uh, this this interview? Well, you know what I'd say. <laughs> Let's just drift along. <laughs> Let's just drift. Let's just drift along. In an, in and in an interview that, uh, in a sense, resisted happening. There was disruption. There was there was incredible disruption. There's uh, and the the disruption for some reason I'm I'm drifting to um, I can't remember which chapter it is. Uh, when play disappears, pathology arrives, or something like that. It's in the creative repetition chapter. Oh, which is which is the the first thing I heard when you that's the chapter that you uh, presented that I heard you, uh, you heard you read. Yes. Um. And what's interesting is when when I heard that, you know, taking mental notes, the the takeaway was about form. And I, I remember I sent you the 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 quote, which is what matters is there's somebody on one end of a wire saying, "My God, I'm alive," and somebody else saying, <laughs> "Yes, I am too." Um, and what was so lovely about that is is a repetition that the case presented you with lots of stimulating uh, material, things you were personally interested in, um, and that, I'm, this isn't the right word, not necessarily not taking the bait, but not necessarily engaging with that at first and allowing something new to come out, is, is, is the not... Going straight towards uh, it, it, responding, offering interpretations is withholding those. In a sense, what allowed the creative repetition? I think to some extent it did. I, you know, that that chapter is about a lot of different things. One of the things that chapter is about is is me trying to think my way through uh, the issue of. Um, enactment uh, which it which had become such a huge topic 
the last 15 years. Um, and one, and one of the best pieces on enactment I, I found that, that really helped me think through it was, was a small paper by a British analyst named Carpy, who says that the, rather than, rather than think in terms of enactment or no enactment, Carpy says, you know, just like the infant, just like the mother shows the infant that the infant is affecting the mother, right? But that the mother is doing work herself to contain that, uh, her reaction to that effect. The analyst shows the patient that the patient is affecting the analyst. And, and in this way, Carpy writes about a kind of controlled enactment. You're, you're controlling the, um, the, so that it doesn't go into some kind of full-blown expanse of enactment. And, and I think that's what led to a shift from, in that case, from using the analyst as an object of repetition, which is simply an object with which one will reenact very familiar uh, scenarios again and again, to an object object of play, and I think that happened um, in ways that are are not very uh, clear consciously, but happened. Well, that that in a sense brings me back to the beginning of the book, um, which is that uh, the part of the respect or the choice of the theorists is the centrality of technique and discipline we're not just oh come and drift along with a stranger there's yeah. uh there's something that that makes that drifting safe yeah i i years ago i i many years ago i went to hear uh ornette coleman play a concert and ornette was you know the one of the creators of free jazz um dissonant uh, harmonics, uh, harmon- harmonics. What was the name of the, 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 he had a whole musical theory, but, but Ornette got, got on stage and he played the most beautiful ballad, uh, Charlie Parker ballad of Donna Lee. And it was just incredible. And then of course the concert went on and he, you know, he went to his kind of signature honking and, and, disharmonious tones, which I loved, but, but it, I I guess I'm rounding back to your point that I think in order to do this, in order to really, um, in order to drift, one has to have that classical repertoire. One has to really be able to play and and really know uh, the literature uh, before one can suspend it enough to, to engage in, in the ways that we're talking about. Right. That's um, very early on. I heard somebody say, you know, what allows uh, someone to really drive down the freeway and just love driving down the freeway is there's a yellow line, there's a white line, there's speed limits, there's agreements on who goes where. Mm-hmm. Hopefully the car is well put together, um, that structure being being in place. And actually there's a book, Joya wrote a few years ago called The End of Jazz, and uh, he talks about the early jazz musicians definitely steeped in 
really classic forms. They, they, they were really rooted in, in something. I think if you're going to go far out, you, you first have to have that kind of, uh, established basis. Is there anything else? Cause we're coming, you know, <laughs> to the end of our, our frame here, uh, anything that, uh, we haven't covered that you would like to, uh, address for, for people listening? Well, um, I, I guess, I guess one thing that I say in the very beginning of the book is that, uh, my my intellectual commitment to phenomenology and the work of particularly French phenomenologists Merleau-Ponty and Jean-Luc Nancy is is not so explicitly represented in this book. It, you know, there aren't long quotes from Merleau-Ponty, but um, but those writers have been so influential on the way that I approach psychoanalysis and. Um, you know, as well as the, the analytic writers I've I've mentioned so far, that I I just want to kind of give a shout out to to those uh, to those phenomenologists for for what they've allowed me to see within psychoanalysis, and and that in a sense passed through to me as the reader because as I I mentioned to you in in my relationship to to the book. Um, it's very alive. It's very dynamic, and it's allowed me to see and consider um, in in my dialogue with 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 my cases. It's really um, I don't want to say sobering. That that that's not the right word. But the book has weight, um, but also incredible clarity. Um, it's really remarkable. Um, I'm. I'm very pleased you said it and and really grateful for your having said it. Good. Well, thank you for coming back on the program. Are you our first returning champion? You may be. I'm not sure. Um, but uh this has been this has been great and uh, I look forward that you're working on you mentioned earlier. What are you currently working on? I'm going to try to write a paper on analytic listening. Mm. Let's see where that goes. <laughs> very good. All right. Uh, Thanks again uh, for joining us. Thank you, Christopher. I really appreciate it.